new as well. It's great particularly to see uh, Andy and Will and their families here. It's been a joy to watch from uh, Sydney, the congregation uh, continuing. Uh, I'd like to apologize because uh, we had planned to do a lot more visiting than we've been able to do, but uh, it's quite not funny, but the day we land in Scotland, I test positive with COVID, you know, so we've been isolating in a, well, kind of isolating in a wonderful place. Um, And thanks to everybody as well for all the offers of meals. Uh, In my student days, I I would have been fed for a couple of weeks. That would have been great, but we're going to go and see our our family. Um, It is good as well to see to see new people. When I came out of hospital in 2011, I sat where uh, Stephen is saying just now, I came in, I had sticks and everything, and I sat down beside two uh, female students, and uh, after a while I said to them, are you visitors here? And they said, oh no, no, this is our church. Uh, and, I, and they looked at me and they said, are you a visitor? I said, no, I'm the minister. <laughs> and they said, oh, you're the guy we've been praying for. So it was lovely to see God building his church even when you were lying in hospital. And it is a privilege because this is, in, in our world, the church is so important because it's the, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And people need to hear the truth. And you need to hear the truth to bring hope. So as we were driving here, uh, I shouldn't have done this, listened to the radio, and they had a minister on being interviewed. And in 15 minutes of interview about her work, not once, and I mean literally not once, was God Jesus or the Bible mentioned. Not once. And I just thought, oh. And I remember, I think, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Hugh, actually. I used to watch God TV occasionally and come in and get really frustrated and vent from the pulpit. And uh, somebody said, look, the congregation want to ban you from ever watching God TV. Uh, we don't need to be warned. You know? And it's just, I just, so, I just thinking, how, how is it possible to take the Bible and make it so dull? And that's what happens a lot. This church grew because God's word was taught. I remember one Sunday coming down here and Sinclair started and somebody beside me said, sorry, you'll forgive me saying this, who's the old guy? Which I felt very good about. And, and, and then after five minutes, he said, wow, this is great. And then 50 minutes later, we thought it was only five minutes later because it was God's word. And what we're looking at today is God's word. So I'm thinking of a group of young people outside St. Andrew's Cathedral in the main square in Sydney, and they're handing out kind of green environmental badges and stuff, and I spoke to them, and they all genuinely believed the world was going to end in about 12 years. The fear that they had, it used to be that it was kind of eccentric Christians who would walk along the Perth Road or be outside the Caird Hall. Remember the big guy out there shouting, the end of the world is nigh. Well, now it's the kind of greens and everyone, the end of the world is nigh. And you kind of feel like that a bit. I mean, I haven't heard about nuclear war since I was in primary school. And now I'm hearing about it. And it seems there's a kind of hopelessness. And then it seemed for a while last year that every time I, I, I went to my computer or something, somebody else back in Scotland had died. I look around now and there are people who are not here. I, I go up to my home in Rosshire, and my mother's there, my father's not there. I never got to say goodbye to him. You know, there, there are, it, it seems there can be a sense of despair. Now, there's a kind of 
false Christianity, which basically says, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing's going to be all right. And those of you who are into Bob Marley will start singing Three Little Birds. But I'm sorry, every little thing is not going to be all right. I used to have a, a poster that I stuck up in the office uh, one time because I just thought it was really funny. I had it at university and it said, you know, I was down, I was discouraged, I was depressed. So they said, cheer up and smile because things could get worse. So I did cheer up, I did smile and things did get worse. <laughs> That's a very Scottish way of, of, of looking at things. But it's not realistic for us to come to God's word and not and understand just how realistic the Bible actually is. So, we're going to look at this now. Romans 8, I've, I had preached in Romans 8 here before, but the reason I wanted to do Romans 8 was I was just caught with this sense of despair. When we had the bushfires in Australia, I remember one time I was flying down from Brisbane and for about 50 miles, all you could see in the dark was flames. And I saw on people's faces the look of terror and horror and hopelessness. Annabelle was, uh, is, was very, is very involved in St. Thomas's church and one time she asked me to go down and to uh, help uh, at a toddler's thing, which I was more than happy to do and it was an open day and this parent came up to me and he said, have you got something to do with the church? And I said, yeah. Uh, I'm not employed by the church, but yes, I do come to this church. And he said, this is hopeless, isn't it? I said, what do you mean? He said, all this. He said, I work in the city, I have a good job, I live in this lovely area but we're getting out. There's no hope here. And he said, we're going to a place called Newcastle. That's a bit like, I don't know, going to Dunfermline to look for hope. Sorry if you're from Dunfermline or Cowdenbeath maybe. You know, it's, you know, why? And he said, you should be, you people should be giving us hope. You should be telling us. And he was right. And so Romans 8 could come into mind and, and something I, I do want to commend, by the way, to all the young people and the older ones as well. I decided to memorize Romans 8, and I did memorize it. And I'll tell you this, I was so stupid in my younger days, even as a minister. We should memorize scripture, and I'll tell you why. Because as you memorize, you stop and you think. Because here's the problem. When you've got your iPhone or whatever, or even if you know, you've got the Bible, you read, and often you skim read. But when you memorize, you have to focus on every word. And it's just incredible how rich it is. And Romans 8 is just incredible in that sense. So I want to give you some uh, encouragement from this. Look at verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Now, forgive me for being uh, quite short with this. And for those of you who don't know me, short is a relative term. But forgive me for that. But look at this very carefully. First of all, note what he does. He says he considers. He doesn't just have wishful thinking. He thinks about it. It's not just that he feels it. But he also realizes on the basis of rational thought what the gospel promises for the future. And you'll notice that he recognizes that there's a great deal of suffering. Sometimes this causes people to question both the existence and the goodness of God. And scripture does not shy away from this question. 
Do you know, for a while in St. Peter's, this was a very strange thing. Someone came up to me after I'd been here about 12 years and said, oh, you're the minister of the church where people don't die. And I thought, what a great reputation. We'll be packed. You know, there'll be all these people coming in. But it was true. My colleagues in the Church of Scotland were doing a funeral a week. I think I did four in 15 years. And then in 2011, something happened. A young man called Sam died, who'd come to our youth club. Uh, a deacon, David Jack, who's about to be married, died, which was in- incredibly traumatic. I remember being up at Loth Beach and that Annabelle phoning me in tears. There was, uh, I myself ended up in, in hospital and almost died. And it just, it was just a whole bunch of different things hit. And you could see in the congregation, there were people who'd experienced pain. But for the first time, there were people going, well, how can this be if God loves us? And I think that what we need is, rather than immediately go to our immediate circumstances, we need to get the bigger picture of the glory of God. And look what Paul does here. He says that the suffering ultimately points us to and leads us to God's glory. There's a suffering. There's a contrast between the suffering of this world and the glory of the world. And the glory of God. The suffering of this world. Look what Paul says. It's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now he's not trivializing death. He's not trivializing cancer. He's not trivializing war. But he's saying there are these great sufferings. But when you look at the glory that's going to be revealed in us. These sufferings pale into insignificance. I've been at Christian's deathbeds where they've got to a point where they've just said, I'm done, I want to be with the Lord, I don't want to stay in this world anymore. Most of us are not at that point. But to be with somebody who's not, it's not resignation, it's not I've given up, it's I'm going home, that's it, I'm going home. And I think that's just a, a wonderful thing. Suffering and glory are not comparable, they are contrasted. So in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but but on what is unseen. So what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the hardest thing to do in the Christian life, to fix your eyes on things that are not seen. It's, it's the hardest thing. You know, our light uh, and momentary troubles, outwardly we're wasting away. There was a man called Bill Henry, which some people, some people here will remember. Much of the, this current congregation is due to Bill Henry's work. He worked down in the shipyard in Dundee and Um, He was in his 80s. What I remember about Bill was he used to sneak out at at 60 years old to play hockey and not tell his wife, which I thought was hilarious. He stayed in the Beald in a housing uh, complex. And one day I came down here and we had a prayer meeting. And for the first time ever, the prayer meeting had double figures, 10 people. I think it was 12 people, actually. And Bill was jumping up and down on one foot and he was 80. And I said to him, Bill... How you got ants in your pants? And he said, this is so great. I haven't seen this for 20 years. 
And then he said this. He said, I used to pray every day that the Lord would take me away because I was so fed up with this world and I was fed up with the church and fed up with everything. And he said, now I'm praying, Lord, let me stay. Let me stay just for a couple of years to see what's going to happen because I'm not sure I'll be able to see it from heaven, which I thought was quite interesting. Do you know, two years to the day, two years to the day, he sat in here, took communion and went home and died. He got to see it. But I thought about him because he was an older man and, you know, we have this thing in the church where some people go, oh, if you're going to be a youthful, if you're going to be a dynamic and powerful church, you need young people. Now, it's great to see young people. But, you know, the best thing you can have in a church are older people who've lived and followed Christ and not turned away because they've got such an example and so much blessing to give One of the big mistakes I made here in the church was one year where we attempted to make the evening service. I was persuaded to do this and I was wrong. Uh, A student service. And I remember one of the students coming up to me and saying, David, I'm not staying in the church here because I came to this church because it wasn't a student church. Yet we were filled with students. But we deliberately didn't aim at that. And I do think it's important that we, we, we realize though outwardly you're fading away. You could be an older person here and you're full of aches and pains but inwardly renewed day by day. So he contrasts the two weights here. One is light and momentary. The other is eternal and far outweighs them all. Now the Hebrew word for the, for the, the eternal is, there's a Hebrew word called kabod, which means heaviness or weight. Some of you may remember the, the, the hippies, 1960s. So remember we had a hippie come in here once and he went, oh man, Dave, that was heavy, that was heavy. And yeah, that's exactly it. It's heavy. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's deep. It's profound. So, verses 19 to 22 then talk about the suffering and glory of the creation. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, if you want to talk about climate change and you want to talk about the creation, do so biblically. Don't argue all the politics and all the science. I don't know enough about it. But I know what the Bible says about the creation and I trust what God says. Here, he's talking about the whole created universe and particularly the earth and he says this fascinating thing about the creation he depicts it as standing on tiptoe or stretching the neck craning forward in order to be able to see in chapter 5 of Romans Paul has spoken about hope here he speaks about the hope for the creation now he does so by telling us that the creation was subjected to frustration I don't understand Christians who don't believe in the fall. In fact, I can't understand how they can be Christians. Because the fall tells us when humanity turned away from God, it is not that the world just carried on, it's that the whole world was infected. In one sense, every Christian should believe in climate change in the sense that we believe that what human beings do or have done and continue to do affects the creation and here we're well we're told in scripture that the ground was cursed because of Adam 
that there were thistles and weeds, that work would be sweat and toil and eventually death would claim them and they would return to the dust. And this is the most frustrating thing. You can have the most wonderful life just now, but you are going to die. You are going to get sick. You are going to experience brokenness. You are going to struggle. And it just doesn't seem right. And the answer is, it's not right. It's not right. This is not how God made the world. But the whole creation is affected by that. I now live in Australia. We now live in Australia. And we love Australia, but please don't tell my Australian friend, Scotland is more beautiful. Um, uh, and, but we do. Where we live, is, it's spectacular. It's wonderful. And um, it's great living in a city that has 170 beaches and actually water that you can swim in because <laughs> it's not so cold. You know, and Australia has this image of being a kind of paradise. But I've lost count of the number of conversations I've had with people, a lot of Brits, by the way, a lot of British people, uh, Europeans and others, who've come to Australia to come to paradise, and they discover it's not paradise. Why? Well, I mentioned bushfires, mentioned floods, mentioned drought. There are all these things that go on, and people say, well, we want to... You know, we have to blame someone for this. And I don't think that people recognize this is the world that we live in. I mean, who would have thought a couple of years ago that on the news every day, people would be saying these are the death figures from an illness. It's as though death hadn't existed before. In New South Wales, one day, I remember... uh, This man came to me and said, it's terrible, isn't it? Four people have died today. And I said, no, that's not true. And he said, oh, you're a COVID conspiracy theorist guy. I said, no, no, I think COVID is real. I don't want to get it. You know, that's why I'm not going back to Scotland. No, and I don't want to get it. And uh, I'm glad I live on this massive island, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, four people didn't die today. 190 people died today. That's how many people die every day in New South Wales. Why these four? People die all the time. It's horrendous. It's horrible. There's no such thing as a church where nobody dies or a family where nobody dies. So that is, this creation is subjected to frustration. And frustration here is the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Vanity of vanity. Everything is vanity. It's futility. It's purposeless. It's emptiness. It's transitory. And death is the ultimate futility and emptiness. I mean, what's the point of Mozart dying at 35 years old? I'm sure all of you by now know the history of this church and, you know, you use the McShane calendar and you know the history of Robert Murray McShane and if you don't, you buy my book and and, and read the history of McShane because it's a wonderful story. But McShane, go out to the graveyard. He died when he was 29 years old. Why? What was... What's the point of having somebody who's such a marvelous ministry? 4,000 men lined the Perth Road as he was buried. What's the point of that? It just seems so, so empty and so pointless. And that's what we often feel. Many times in this street, in St. Peter's Street, this tiny street, I visited three junkie flats. 
Remember going to a flat up in Whitfield and a woman with a 10-year-old boy, two, 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, shooting up, didn't know where her son was and didn't know where he'd been for the past night. Why are you doing that? Why are you shooting up? Why? Because there's no point in life. Because the drugs are the only thing that take away the pain. You may not shoot up. You may not take fentanyl or heroin or whatever. But why drink so much alcohol? Why be so absorbed so much in your favorite television program or computer game? Why weep and cry over trivia rather than face up to the reality of the futility of life? And by the way, that's not the Christian view. That's the secular view of the world. It's hopeless. The mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell used the second law of thermodynamics 100 years ago to attack theism. The second law states, in effect, that the universe is dying, descending inexorably into chaos as its reserves of useful energy are squandered. Russell reflected on the vast death of the solar system that will follow when the sun burns out in several billion years' time. And this is what he said. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, he wasn't politically correct. He didn't know. You can't say him. But on him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark, blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. And you know what Russell said? Therefore, in the absence of God, we must build our lives on a foundation of unyielding despair. Wow, that's some hope, isn't it? Build your life on a foundation of unyielding despair. My favorite quote that I used many times of his was, you are a blob of carbon floating from one meaningless extreme to another, one meaningless existence to another. And I contrast that with the ancient Greek professor, professor, ancient Greek preacher, Chrysostom. And I'm so glad, by the way, that there are no Greek words in this because when I used to say Greek words here, Maria would always shout out and correct me. You know, so uh, I learned my Greek, how to pronounce Greek words. It's ecclesia. Um, you see how God has provided for us, says Chrysostom, on either hand, leading, by the, leading us by the beauty of the elements to the knowledge of his divinity and by their feebleness, not permitting us to lapse into the worship of them. We would take kids from the housing schemes here on discovery camps. We'd go up to the glens and I'd just take them out and look and say, okay, tell me there's no God. And they couldn't. How could you? You have to be an idiot to, to look at all the creation and say there's no creator. But Chrysostom is right. It's also feeble. It's also weak as well. It can be dangerous. And that's why here it says the creation will be liberated. The creation is in bondage to decay. The earth is decaying. Nature is enslaved. It is in bondage. Conception, birth, and growth are followed by decline, decay, death, and decomposition. There is real pain. But that's where Burton Russell stops. That's not where God stops. Because the creation is going to be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Out of bondage, into freedom. Out of decay, into glory. Out of corruption, into incorruption. God's creation shares in the glory of God's children, which itself is the glory of Christ. Isaiah says, 65, 17, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 
The new creation will be a creation in which God's glory is not hindered and obscured by our selfishness and self-absorption. The creation right now groans. That's what the earthquakes are. That's what the diseases are. You know, with COVID, you know what amazes me is how ignorant we are of history. Because for all of human history, plague has dominated. Since 1918, in the Western world, we have not experienced those kinds of plagues until now. There's a book by Yol Noah Harari, who's, he's very, if you're a kind of intellectual, pseudo-intellectual, to be honest, uh, you're saying, oh, this is the guy who knows how the world is. His book in 2016 says, isn't it amazing that humanity has managed to get rid of plague, war, and disease? Yeah, that worked well. Plagues have been around all the time. Did you notice this with COVID as you're reading your Bible, how often plagues suddenly came up? Keith Getty told me this. He was redoing the Psalms. He's, you know, writing versions of the Psalms. And... uh, you should listen to Psalm 130, by the way, because it's the tune uh, Martyrdom, and we put him onto that one. But uh, he told me that he was doing Psalm 91, which is such a beautiful psalm. And his publishers, his American publisher said to him, we like the version, but can you remove the bit about plagues because it's no longer relevant to today's world? That was the year before COVID. The Bible's always relevant. We don't need to rewrite it. Matthew 24 says this, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. I'm reluctant to say what it was like here, because I don't know, really. What I saw from the UK wasn't good, but in Australia, it wasn't good either. And it was simply this. Where was the church during COVID? You know what we were doing? We were boasting about how we help people. We weren't asking for repentance. We weren't, I mean, you did get some people saying this is the judgment of God. And I don't think in that sense that directly it was, but I do think it was God saying, when I withdraw my hand, this is what happens. When you want to live in the world by yourself and control things by yourself, this is what happens. There are over six billion viruses in the world. Why do you think any of us is alive now? Because of the protection of God. It's in him we live and move and have our being. And our greatest sin is not to be thankful for that. And sometimes I feel that what, what, what's happened with COVID is, is God saying, reminding us, it was a, it was a, it's an absolute earthquake to our psyche to tell us we are all vulnerable. And our governments were so arrogant, we can fix this, we can deal with this. No, you can't. This one tiny virus floored your economy. And in the church, we should be saying to people, we, we need to come to God in repentance. Jesus says, these are the beginning of birth pains. This suffering is the birth pains of something great that is coming. And that's where the hope is there, you see? The bondage to decay gives place to the freedom of glory. The pains of labor are followed by the joy of birth. Um, Andy, I'm I'm sure you're, and and well, I'm sure you don't need any advice on this, but I once here uh, used childbirth as an illustration. Shall I say that afterwards there was a queue of women 
uh, speaking to me, informing me that I didn't really know what I was talking about, which was actually true. Um, and no amount of justifying it by saying you don't know what man flu is uh, uh, helped either. The point is this. Birth is painful. And there's a, a, a new birth of the universe, if you like, that's coming I think it's wrong to believe in a non-material heaven. I don't know what heaven is going to be like. But I think the resurrection body of Jesus, the fact that he ate fish and various other things suggests that the notion of heaven as some kind of ethereal place is not, is not correct. We believe there is a restoration. We believe that the present creation is going to be redeemed, renewed and restored. Believers will be changed. The creation will be changed. Calvin says this, there is no element and no part of the world that being touched as it were with a sense of its present misery does not intensely hope for a resurrection. So let me offer you this as a thought. The greatest way to combat climate change is to proclaim the gospel so that more people become believers because the creation is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. That's the greatest hope. It's the greatest hope for Dundee. You know, I love Dundee. But it's a depressing place at times, especially on a Saturday at Dens, <laughs> recently anyway. But it is a depressing place. Sometimes you walk, and I mean, sometimes it's a glorious place and beautiful. What Dundee needs is more people becoming Christians. You know, I'm very proud. We're, we're very proud of our son up in Charleston. And thank you for the support. And please do continue to support that work. But I used to walk through Charleston for many, many days. I would walk through it when we were thinking about planting a church there and just saying, what can we do, what can we do? And the answer is preach the gospel. And I'll tell you this, is nothing thrills my soul more than on a Monday going onto YouTube and watching Andy, as he's called now apparently, preaching to people who can't help but shout out and ask questions. And they want to know. And it's great. It's absolutely fabulous. You know, um, even when somebody says, what about my cat? You know, what's God going to do about my cat? I, I love that. I love the fact that the gospel is connecting with real people and the things that they think about. Now, verses 23 to 25, um, I'd love to go into this more, but it's about the suffering that we have. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. If you think of the word first fruits of the Spirit, what would you think? You think, oh, full of joy. Dancing and clapping and just one of these wonderful. But we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The creation groans, we groan. There's the suffering of emptiness, isn't there? Oh, it's so easy to sit in a church like this and inside to feel as empty as can be. It's so easy. I know it. Believe you me, I've seen people sit in pews here. In three instances, I've seen people go away and commit suicide. You can feel empty. The hurt and the pain. And sometimes you can't share it with anyone. And sometimes when people feel that God is not there, there's a sense of futility and despair and that emptiness, by the way, is seen in so much art, music, and literature. It's seen in the lost and the lonely, in the vast number of suicides. 
The undertakers here told me that, uh, that by far the number one cause of death for young men in Dundee, 20 to 40 years old, was suicide. Not drugs. They weren't even including deaths through drugs in that. In fact, they told me, can we put you on our books because you'll make a lot of money out of it because we've got so many people to bury. <laughs> no, no, that's... I, no, it was just seemed so empty. And the drugs and the empty sex and the futile anger. And we as Christians can suffer from depression and loneliness and frustration and despair as well. Let me be honest. Not everything here, I mean, we come in here and myself and Annabelle are deeply moved to be here with you. But there's pain as well. Not everything it's perfect. You know what Spurgeon said about the perfect church to the woman who came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm leaving your church because it's not perfect. And he said, well, madam, when you find the perfect church, please don't join it because you'll just spoil it. Well, it's, this church isn't perfect. I get a bit tired of going to churches sometimes and they spend all their time saying how wonderful they are. No. But there was so much joy and good in here as well, in the midst of all the pain. These things always go together. But sometimes it can be hard. In Scots, you know the phrase, if you're not Scottish, it's a serfect. It's a hard fight. Sometimes marriage is a serfect. Sometimes your kids are a serfect. Sometimes your work is a serfect. Sometimes your church is like that. I, we, love, we love being in Australia, but I personally say my work has been as hard as it's ever been. The battle has been as fierce as it's ever been. And if you just looked at yourself and you just looked at the immediate circumstances, you would despair. But you have to look beyond. You have to see that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. He says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now that was Pentecost. In Greek, the... The first fruits was the beginning of the harvest. It was the feast of weeks. It was the reaping of the first fruits. And it was called Pentecost. I think of my father in terms of on the farm. And when we did our first harvest. The first harvest of the year. And we brought in the first trailer load of grain. It's such a wonderful thing. I do hope by the way that you still continue harvest Thanksgiving. It was something we, we did here. Because lots of people in the city thought their food came from Tesco's. And it doesn't. Ultimately, it comes from God, and we give thanks for that. Well, we've received the Spirit as a kind of first fruits, the guarantee of our adoption and the redemption of our bodies. It's a bit like a membership card. Um, in the old free church tradition, you used to have a table, and members used to be given communion tokens. You can get them online now. They're collectible antique items. Um, you had a token and your token was just really saying you were a member in the church. And I love this idea of the spirit being the first fruit. One of the mistakes I've made in my life is simply this, to believe that I'm a Christian, I've got this, I've just got to maintain it. And you know the big mistake in that? I should want more. I should never be satisfied. I should always be looking to grow and to develop and that's why he says here we groan because we're still in this world. Our salvation is not complete. We share with the frustration, the decay and the pain. It is the absolute blasphemy for people to say once you become a Christian, you don't get sick. 
or you don't get discouraged or, or your sin is, is completely gone. No, we are physically frail, we are mortal, and maybe because we are Christians, we might experience extra suffering. But we wait. 2 Corinthians 5.1, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal home in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit, the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. There is more to be revealed. There's more for you to receive. There's more to understand. Your life, let me say this to you. If you, you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking about it. And one of the things as a young person, you might think, well, I'd like to be a Christian because I'd like to go to heaven, but being a Christian is quite dull. To be honest, I think being a non-Christian is pretty boring. I'll, I'll say this, this may not be true for every Christian, but for me, from the day I became a Christian, I've never known a day of boredom in my life. Sometimes I prayed, Lord, please give me some boredom because the excitement is too much. You know the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times? Well, we're cursed just now. But in one sense, we should be looking, looking for this salvation. We are saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. And we have hope. I remember Jehovah's Witness coming to the door up in uh, Shamrock Street and saying, do you believe God is good? I went, yep. And they looked at me and they said, well, why, why do you believe that? And I said, well, it's not found in your magazine, but it is in the word of God. That's where I find that God is good. We have this hope, and it's a hope that we haven't yet got. I mean, I, I did like the, the pudding illustration. Uh, although I have to confess, I have been in a home where there were pudding spoons and it didn't occur. So it's not a perfect illustration. But I did like the pudding illustration. You know, and uh, I, I, I mean, the only, like all illustrations, of course, it's inadequate. Because what we hope for, it's not oblivion. It's not the Buddhist doctrine. Again, on the radio this morning, I heard Buddhism being extolled and I thought, no, I don't want to go to nothingness. Why do I want to go to nothingness? Heaven is the ultimate feast, the ultimate party. Heaven is, as my old friend Case says from the Netherlands, it's everything good in this life magnified a million times with everything bad taken out. Now, let me apply just a little bit of this before we finish. Um, John Stott says this, I like this a lot. He says, there are some Christians that grin too much and groan too little. You know, the kind that are always happy. I don't believe you. And if you're always happy, there's something wrong with you. Um, sorry, but you know, our, our daughter Emma Jane, as you know, is effervescent. She was born in this congregation, grew up in it. And so, you know, you're not always happy. There's no place in their theology for suffering. I don't know how many times people came into this church absolutely broken as Christians because their theology in their church had told them that if they were good, they wouldn't really suffer. If they believed enough, the, their friend would be healed. If they only prayed enough, they would get that job. 
And you know what they did? Instead of that being a blessing, that was a curse to them because they came away absolutely racked with guilt and hurt and confusion and pain. Suffering doesn't mean that you're cursed by God. Job, I preached through Job here twice because it was the book that non-Christians most appreciated. And then other Christians, on the other hand, they forget hope. They forget what it's like to live in between times. We're saved in hope. We wait eagerly with keen expectation. Some of us are just kind of, we think it's spiritual to go, oh, I'm just fed up with everything in the world's a mess and da, 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 and I can't wait for heaven. But I'm sorry, you're waiting for heaven like you're waiting for a funeral, a bad funeral. The kind of expectation here is like waiting for the absolute best party. It's like just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a longing for something positive, not just a means for us to escape from our current miserable circumstances. Some Christians become lethargic, apathetic, and pessimistic. They forget God's promises. They are guilty of unbelief. Others are too impatient. They're over-enthusiastic. They try to force God's hand. They are determined to experience what is not even available yet. They talk as if the resurrection had already taken place, as if a Christian should never get sick, as if we're not subjected to frustration. But that is to rebel against God and not believe his promises that he will fulfill his salvation. Again, Stott says this, we need a patient eagerness and an eager patience as we wait for the promises to be fulfilled. So, how do we apply it all? We do need to care for the creation as we care for our bodies. We look after the land. We don't deliberately pollute. And our bodies, you know, we live in this crazy world. We are not, I've said this many times to you, We are not progressing as a society. We are regressing into a Greco-Roman pagan view of the world. And part of that is the way that the body is seen. So, you know, everyone's obsessed with going to the gym. Well, maybe not everyone. Some of you clearly are not. But (laughs) everyone, you know, a lot of people, I've got to get my body this. I've got to, you know, look at my six pack. Or in my case, my 60 pack. But, you know, there's, there's just this thing. And, and we see this a lot in Sydney, you know, gyms and gyms. And, you know, you go down to Bondi Beach or one of these beaches and there's all these disgusting guys with rippling muscles all the time, you know, and you feel like a whale going into the water. And it's, but there's, you know, got my body, my body, but your body's going to fade. Or the whole transgender thing. What's that about? How did we get to a place in our society where our politicians can't even say what a woman is? How do we get there? And by the way, in the church, we should be standing up for women's rights. I find myself in this completely bizarre situation. When I first came to Dundee, the feminist society used to throw things at me. And now, I'm their biggest ally. Because we recognize there is such a thing as women and men. That's what the Bible teaches But how did we get to a stage when you have 16-year-olds who are asking that their breasts be removed so that they can accommodate their inner feelings? It's a perverse and sick and godless world. And Christians' option is not to withdraw from it, but to say, we honor what God has given us. We care for one another. We care for our bodies um, I don't have time to read it all, but Philippians 3, for example, read, read of that. Uh, he talks about their God being their stomach, their glory is in their shame. But he, he talks about us 
being like Christ's glorious body. We don't greed, overeating, drunkenness, sexual immorality. Our bodies are made for the Lord, not for sexual immorality. It's not that in the church we have a low view of sex, it's we have a very high view of sex, the very opposite of our society. We need to be involved in the world. Do you know, I, I like history a lot, and at the end of the first three centuries, I think this is demonstrable, provable, there was a tendency to despair in the church as sexual immorality, paganism, and other factors threatened to overwhelm the church. Not only so, but there was a plague that went through the Roman Empire that killed some estimate up to 25% of the people. And Christians were in despair. What is happening? What is going on? There were many attempts to withdraw from society. When the Reformation came along, they did the opposite. You know what I love about the Dutch church? The Dutch church, when the Reformation came along, they closed their churches because they used to have them open all the time. And they urged people to get involved in the world. Now, you can misunderstand that and misapply that, and you need to get the context, context of it right. But we, 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 we don't come to this church so that we can escape away from everything that's going on all around us. We do it so that we can get involved. And that's why places like Charleston are important. There's, I don't know if this is still the case, there were 70,000 people lived in housing estates in Dundee. And I'm not saying these housing estates were bad. That's, that's a caricature that's wrong. But nonetheless, as contemporary society took away the idea of marriage and family, they destroyed these working class communities. And instead of working class communities, they became benefit communities. And instead of that, there was drugs and, and everything else were seen as a solution and 15 minutes of fame on television or sex with as many people as, as you can. And the answer to that is not social welfare, even though that's important to give, out, to give food and so on. It is the gospel. And that's where we as Christians need to be involved. And we study Christ and his word. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm sorry if you have a sore head today. And yeah, sure, we'll pray for your sore head. But when prayer meetings in churches become what one man called organ recitals, we pray for so-and-so's heart, for so-and-so's lungs for so-and-so's there's something wrong yes we pray about these things but our burden right now in this world should not be the state of politics or even the plague or even the war in Ukraine important as all these things are or in your own personal circumstances it should be this that without Christ people are dead in sins and trespasses they are lost they are going to hell Besides which, all the pains of this world are trivial. And when they know Christ, they know such beauty and such glory that beside which, all the sufferings of this world are trivial. See, when we came to Dundee, we had no hope for this church. Handful of people. Our son Andrew, young boy, standing up on the pew, shouting out to his mother in a broad Sutherland accent, Mom, there's no people. Where's all the people? And there wasn't. And how could you get them? You couldn't. There was no way. There was no program. There was nothing you could do. All you do, teach the Bible, live the Bible, see what happens. And God in his mercy blessed. It was as simple as that. And people were saved. And 
It's a wonderful thing. I don't care if this church as a building or even as a congregation continues unless people are brought to Christ. You're wasting your time if that's not what happens. Never be satisfied. If this building was filled five times over, never be satisfied. There are 150,000 people in this city and I will guarantee you that 145,000 of them don't know Christ. That is a great field. I'll leave you with um, my favorite story from the free church in the time of the disruption. It's a man called Thomas Guthrie who ended up starting a thing called the Ragged Schools Movement which educated over 70,000 children. He was standing at the grass market in Edinburgh. Now you go to the grass market in Edinburgh now and it's Poshville, right? It's, it's where you know, the yuppies go. Uh, but it was a slum. 20 people to a flat. A flat, you can call them flats. It stank to high heaven. If you go to Edinburgh, you stand on the bridges. And he did. And he was looking out. He was being called there. And he smelt it. And he knew the sexual immorality. He knew the violence. He knew the poverty. He knew that half the children died before they got to five years old. He knew all of that. And he was in abject despair. And Thomas Chalmers came up to him, put his arm around him with his right arm and with his left hand, he gestured over the whole grass market. And he said to him, a fine field, young man, a fine field. And it absolutely transformed his vision and his life. I came to Dundee. You know what Christian said to me? Scum D. What are you going to Dundee for? There's no hope there. I said, well, that's exactly why we're going. Because that's where the gospel flourishes most. So you have a great opportunity. It's wonderful to share God's word with you. The suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. And we pray that God would show us some of that glory on this earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful word, a word that we can think about and we can meditate on and we can contemplate, and yet we will still not get to its depths. We bless you for Jesus. We bless you that he is the light of the world, that he is the hope of the world, that he is the peace of the world. We bless you that in this church Christ is proclaimed. We pray, Lord, that we would live lives that are worthy of you. And that as we go from this place, our lives would radiate hope in a city of despair, in a country full of massive contradictions where such beauty resides with such ugliness. We ask, O Lord, that for anyone here who themselves are struggling within with despair and hopelessness, who on the one hand know the truth and on the other hand don't feel it, We pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Pray for Andy and Will, for the elders, for all the families, for the children, for all the believers, that they would radiate and know Christ. And Lord, we pray for those who as yet don't know you. We thank you that in this building, ever since it was built, people have been brought to a living and saving faith in you. We ask that that would continue. Oh Lord, We talk of hope. May we live it. May we feel it. May we know it. And may our hope not be in ourselves or our own abilities or anyone else, 
but purely and simply in our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.